out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm just going to, we're going to read this text together, and then we'll kind of back up, and we'll just, uh, we'll walk through it. So if you want to join me, I'm going to be in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. <coughs> For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. If Christ has been raised from the dead... That's where our passage is going to take us. That's where we're going to, going to jump off today. Um, and that's the central assertion of the gospel. That's, that's the centrality of the gospel. We're here this morning and we're gathered together as a group of people to proclaim this truth. That Christ is raised from the dead. And so... If you're here this morning as, as someone who's a Christian, someone who follows Jesus um, and follows this message and, and this news is what you, what you put your hope in, what you cling to and what you've come to believe, well then, then for you this morning, my, my hope is, is that today will be a great day of celebration, a great day of, of joy and remembrance and renewal and reminder, because that's why we're gathered today. That's what we stand on. And likewise, if you're, if you're someone who's here and you're not a believer, you wouldn't say you're a, a follower of Jesus, so to speak, or you might even be a little skeptical about it all, um, then my prayer for you this morning is that this passage and the message uh, that I'm going to share with you would, would provoke uh, some sort of wholesale re-examination about your strategy for living based on this proclamation that Christ has been raised from the dead. Like, what's your strategy for living knowing that that message is out there? That that's a possibility, that's, that's something that a, that, that a group of people would even consider or even verbalize. And so our time this morning is going to be spent considering the question, if Christ has been raised from the dead? And if he has been raised from the dead, what, what are the implications of that? Like, what, what, is that, what kind of bearing does that have on me? What does that mean for me? And if Christ has been raised from the dead, our passage is going to tell us that there are some things that we must be willing to reckon with. Things that we're going to need to be faced with. We're going to need to wrestle with these things. So, so we live in this, this cultural climate, right? And in our society today, where all of us are, are pressured and, and we're persuaded um, to separate matters of faith 
from, from matters of fact. Like that's just, that's just how our world works today. Matters of faith, matters of, of fact. And that's the world we live in. And in, this matter, in these matters of, of faith over here, um, that category is where all of your personal beliefs, that's where they fall. Right? So your religion, the things that you hold dear, your spirituality, all of those things belong over here. That's matters of faith. And you're okay to have those. These things, they're personally meaningful to you. Um, they're helpful to you in how you live your life. But, but after all, they're just matters of faith. It's what, it's what you believe, and you're free to hold them. You're free to have them as long as you don't share them with anyone or try to persuade or pressure anyone to believe something different than what they already believe. You have your faith, you have your beliefs, and that's yours. You can have that. And on the other side, there's matters of fact. And we, our, our culture has separated these two for us, and, and they've even uh, uh, pressured us to acknowledge the separation in these two. And these matters of fact, these are things that can be proven, right? These are scientific things. They're verified through practical knowledge, through history, through science, through, through general observation. Those things are, are matters of fact, and those things are what really matter. See, it's cool and all that you have all of this over here. It's cool that you have your personal beliefs and you're persuaded a certain way and that's fine and all, kind of keep it to yourself. Over here, this is matters of fact and these are the things that matter most in our society and in our culture. So matters of faith must be kept separate from matters of fact, so says the cultural climate that we find ourselves in today. And yet there's this one message this one proclamation that stubbornly resists this dichotomy. It stubbornly resists this idea, uh, and it's the message that lies at the heart of Christianity, and it is the proclamation that Christ has been raised from the dead. The Christian gospel is stubbornly historical. Right? It's, it's something, it's a, it's a fact, it's a statement that we say something happened. There was an event that took, took place. It makes an assertion of fact. And this proclamation that Christ has been raised from the dead is, it's not a matter of subjective personal faith, so to speak. Rather, it's a statement about what did or what did not happen. Like something that happened in time, factually, in time, in space, in history. So the Christian gospel refuses to be put in one of culture's boxes, one of culture's categories. The gospel frustrates our culture with that. We proclaim something that either happened or it didn't. That's just the reality. And so you can already start to see how this, how this proclamation has implications for, for us either in one direction or in the other direction. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, what are the implications of that? So in the city of Corinth, the, the, the passage that I just read, Paul's writing this passage um, in a time and in a, in, a, in, a, in a season where there were some who, who had come to believe the gospel um, and, and they professed their faith in Jesus. Um, and then, then there were some who had, who had said, you know what, there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. There's no such, there's no such thing as that. Sure, that's something those Christians believe in, but, but factually, like in reality, there's no such thing as resurrection. That just, that just doesn't happen. And the bigger problem was that some of those people who were saying this 
were also believers in Jesus. They were also part of the church. And, and Paul's writing to the church, and he's saying, man, there's, there's an issue here. There's, there's, there's a discrepancy here. And, and he's writing to confront the problem. He says in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he's writing to Christians here and he's challenging their position. He's, he's saying, the message you claim to believe, that you put your faith in, is that Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the message that you say you believe. So if that's the message you say you believe, how can you at the same time say there's no such thing as a resurrection? So can we all agree with Paul that there's a discrepancy here? If I'm a believer in Jesus, if I'm a follower of Christ, if I put my faith in him, I can't at the same time say that there's no such thing as resurrection. Those two things are, they're, they're conflicting. And, and, and it's like saying, like, listen, I'm a musician, right? But there's no such thing as music. I'm a, I'm a Tigers fan, man, but there's no such thing as football. It just, it doesn't make sense. These things don't compute. And that's where Paul's going here. And he said, no, 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 look, man, look. The, the assertion that Christ has been raised from the dead is an assertion of historical fact. And it's either true or it's not true. And if it is true, here's the implications of that. If Christ has been raised from the dead, he would say, your faith, brothers and sisters, is not in vain. Your faith isn't in vain. Our society consistently and constantly whispers in our ears how foolish we are as believers in this gospel. Constantly whispering in our ears how foolish we might be. You believe in things like angels and demons. You believe in, in, in heaven and in, and in hell. And man, no one believes that mess anymore. That's, like, why do you stubbornly hold on to this prehistoric, foolish faith? Like, we've progressed since then. That was before information was available to us, and, and it was easier to believe. But man, that's just kind of foolish. That's what, that's what our culture whispers in our ear constantly. And what society is trying to tell us is they're trying to tell us, your faith, man, your faith is in vain. It's, it's, it's not worth anything. It's not going to amount to anything. It's pointless. It's meaningless because it's, because it's, after all, it's made up. There's no such thing. And Scripture would agree with them that if, in fact, Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. Your faith is foolish. In verse 14, Paul would say, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So, yeah, if you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead... You are foolish. And Scripture would agree with that. And so, if that's the truth, then why would we be even wasting our time here this morning? Why would, why would, we, even, why would we even do this? Why would we read in our news feeds that people are dying over this right now? If Christ had not been raised. And so I, I really wish that we could all see and embrace the reality that the Christian faith, it's incredibly common sense religion. It might seem from a distance very complicated and there's a whole lot of nuances to it and there's certain ways to believe certain things. 
But if Jesus got up out of the grave, that simply matters. Let's just keep it that simple. If Jesus rose from the dead, that has implications. That matters. And if he didn't, then why would you even bother believing that he did? And that's what Paul's trying to say in this text. And so the Christian gospel, it calls us to consistently come back to the historical event of the resurrection. It's why we want to come back around this idea this morning. It's why we want to talk about it every time we gather together to remind one another the good news of Jesus that includes him overthrowing death, overcoming the grave. And the reason we want to do that is because we have to consistently come back and ask ourselves the question, did this really happen? And I just want to kind of maybe put it out there for all of you. It's okay to ask that question. Did this really happen? Think about it for a second. A man was obviously dead. And the message is that he rose from death, that he came back to life. If we're asking any serious questions at all about our faith, that should be one that we should ask. Did that really happen? And always use the source for your research for that the answer to that question. And so, if Christ has been raised from the dead, your faith is not in vain, is what Paul says. Your faith has substance. It has significance. It is genuine. It is, it is dense and deep. It is robust. Your faith is strong. It's not in vain if Christ, in fact, rose from the dead. And so, for my skeptics in the room, for those of you who do ask that question, and you ask it often, and you're really just not sure, you're just really trying to nail down the answer to that, I, I, first thing I want to do is say that no one here is inviting you into a faith that merely makes you feel better, that, that provides your personal needs. Like no one here, including myself, we're not inviting you into that kind of faith. That's not what kind of faith that scripture would even invite you into. The invitation is for you to consider the resurrection, to ask the question, did that really happen? And, and really go after, go hard after the answer. I encourage you to go do all the research, use all the scripture, use all of the, all the resources that you can find to, to determine the answer to this question. It's, it's worth going after. So would you, my skeptics, my friends in the room who, who are not sure, would you, would you consider, would you wrestle with the historical, the biblical evidence that this actually happened? Would you do that? And, and, and if it did happen, then can't you see that trust in Jesus, putting your faith in, in Jesus Christ, putting all your hope in Jesus is the most reasonable, the, the most rational, the most incredible thing that we can invite you into? That if we believe that and if we've researched that and if we've come to the conclusion that all the evidence says, yes, this is true, then wouldn't it be reasonable for us to invite you into that same reality, to invite you into that space? I, w I would hope you would see that because, because if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we're not stuck in our sins anymore. You, my friend, who, who in the room who might feel like you're weighted down and stuck in your sin, in Christ, if he has in fact risen from the grave, we are no longer stuck in our sins. That's what Paul would say in verse 17 of our text. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You read that the same way. If Christ has been raised, your faith is not futile, and you are no longer stuck in your sin. 
If Christ hasn't been raised, you're in the same place that you've always been. You're, you're stuck in that same place. And when we see that word in, when, when, when you see that word in that verse, it's insinuating a, a place, a location, right? Like it, it, it's insinuating that it, it describes where we are. It describes the space that we're in, the location we're in. Right now, we are all in the 501 Community Center. That's, that's where we find ourselves. And we're in North Sulphur. And there's no possible way that me or you or anybody else can be somewhere else right now but right here. It's just fact. Likewise, so when the Bible uses the phrase uh, being in our sin that way, the way, he's, the way he uses that there and the way the scripture uses it all over, it captures for us a very deep and a very weighty reality. That, that rather sin, like, okay, so it's saying like, my sins aren't just things that I do. There aren't just actions that I perform. There, there aren't just behaviors that I engage in or, or don't engage in. That's, that's not what sin is. In fact, sin is a, a place. Better yet, it's a, it's a state of being that we find ourselves in. And that's what he means when he says, in Christ. Sin is not just a thing we do. It's a place where we are. And so for some of you, you might come from a, a religious persuasion uh, that led you to believe that, that to be in the presence of God means you need to come into a church. Come be on a Sunday morning, come visit here. If you want to be in the presence of God, you come here. But thanks be to God for our reformers who brought back the reality, who, who, who refreshed the idea and recaptured that moment that all of life, every second of life is lived out in the presence of God. Every second of it, because he created the universe and formed us and formed the world that, that we exist in. There's not one second that we live outside of the presence of God. Not one second. So you're no more in the presence of God right now than you will be tomorrow when you go to work or next weekend when you're working in your yard. You are no more or no less in the presence of God. And so the reason I'm in my sins, the reason I'm there is because one includes the other, right? For example, I'm in the 501 Community Center, so I'm in North Sulphur. Those two things, they can't exist apart from one another. It just, I can't be in one place without being in the other. And so if you're in the universe that God made, if, you're, if you exist inside his creation as a moral creature, then you are also in your sins, you are also there because, because of this opposing separation of God's holiness and our rebellion, we can't help but be in our sins. There's, there's, this, there's this opposing distinction, this separation of God's holiness and man's rebellion. We see it open up in the very beginning of the story, and it's been that way ever since. And this is the place where we find ourselves. This is the place we're stuck in. And, and if, if you think, well, maybe for some people I know, Blake, but I'm, I feel like I'm pretty good. Like, I, I don't feel like I'm just kind of stuck in that place. I don't feel like I'm just a sinful, wretched person. Then my question is, where are you getting that information from? Like, who told you that? Because what Scripture says is none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. 
That's the information that I gather from Scripture. That's what Romans chapter 3 would say. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So see, we're all in the same boat. Every single one of us. Sin is it's not just something bad that you do. It's a position of, of high treason against the king. And it's, and it's mankind's heart naturally bent toward his seat on the throne. I want that throne. I want that place. It's, it's a state of being that, that we're in. Scripture would teach us that, that we don't, listen, we don't just sin and then become sinners, right? Scripture would teach us that, no, 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 we're sinners, right? And that's why we sin. It's hardwired into us. And it was given to us as an inheritance from our father Adam. And so we're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. Our nature leads us to lust. It leads us to gossip and to murder and to lie and to cheat and to hate. And to be racially hosti hostile toward, toward a, a another group of people. It, it teaches us to be selfish. And the wages of that sin is death. That's what we get for that. And this is what that means. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, we can't have good news unless we understand what the bad news is. This is bad news for us. But my friends, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, that's the good news. If Christ has been raised from the dead, we don't have to stay in this place anymore. We're not stuck in that place of sin anymore if Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. Now we can experience a change in, in, in spiritual geography, so to speak. There's a, there's a new place, right? Christ has been, if he's been raised from the dead, this whole new place is possible for you and me. He lived the perfect life that you and I were, were required to, li to live but unable to achieve. And he gave his life away at the cross to pay the wages of our sin for each and every one of us who was indebted to him. And so after three days, Jesus would rise from the dead so that he might relocate us, that he might give us a new address, that he might create a new place for us to exist, so that he might transfer us into a new and a better reality. And the Bible describes this reality of, of rather being in your sins, it would describe it as being in Christ. You see, now I was in this place, I was in this, this spot, and because Jesus is now raised from the dead, I'm in a new location now in Christ. And that new place, that new reality is a place of forgiveness. It's a place of freedom and renewal and redemption. I'm set free from who I used to be. And now I have the liberty to live an entirely new existence in Christ. If Christ has been raised from the dead, you don't have to stay stuck in your sins anymore. 
You don't have to stay there. A whole new reality is possible for you. A whole new reality has been possible for me. I can come to this new place now. I can go there now. And so if you're here this morning and you belong to Christ, you are, you are in Christ, you are no longer in your sins. And I want to make that distinction because I just, I don't want that to just say, well, because Jesus rose from the dead, everybody's going to heaven. Scripture has a lot to say against that. But if you are in Christ, you don't have to stay stuck in your sins anymore. You're no longer in that place. You're no longer defined by that spiritual geography anymore. And that's good news. That's great news for us. For those of us who would come to terms with the fact that, yeah, I ain't so good. Like, I'm, I'm not, I don't have it all together. Like, if we can come to those terms, then this is good news for us, that we're, we have a way out. That I've been trying to dig myself out of this, and I can't get myself out of it. And so that's why it's a day of joy today. That's why it's a day worthy of great celebration because Jesus has transferred us out of sin and into his kingdom, into his forgiveness, into his presence forever. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, there is a greater resurrection to come. The resurrection of Jesus is kind of like the, the movie trailer to, a, to the greater resurrection that, that's to come. That's what Paul would say in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In fact, not in fantasy, not in somebody else's idea or philosophy, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Literally, physically, historically, he has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so falling asleep is this, is this biblical word for, for death. That, that's, where, that's what it's alluding to. And so we're in this, this spring season now, right? And, and you, you may, it's been, we've been close enough where you can always, you can probably recall the first little flower budding or the first little, the little uh, pretty leaf or whatever that you've seen spring up. And the first thing you see that is like, what that's alluding to is uh, something greater is fixing to happen. Like, that's not the only thing that's fixing to happen. Everything's fixing to bloom. That's indication that something else is starting to bloom. And what it's hinting at is there's more to come. So, so, so Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. And that's just the, that's the, that's the, that's the bloom in the first part of spring, right? It's, it's, it's pointing us to something else that's greater to come. That's what the resurrection is. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the first fruit of a much greater resurrection to come because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Winter is over and spring is here. It's inevitable. This is happening. I see it happening before my eyes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 21 and 22, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here's what that means. The natural, uh, the, the nature of, of historical events changed what's possible. What happened in history changed what's possible for the future. Dramatic historical events, that, that, that they change what is and isn't possible. So, so just a little over 100 years ago, um, automobiles uh, didn't exist. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, about 105 years ago, Henry Ford kind of started the, the, the assembly line for the, the automobile. And when that started, only the, only the rich, only the very innovative were able to have one. This was a luxury to have, an automobile. This was something that most people didn't have. This means that over 100 years ago, 
No one drove to church. No one drove here, and the automobile was a, a distant possibility. It was unreasonable. It's an unreasonable idea to fathom. And now, today, we stand here, and I just want you to look at how much has changed. Just look around. With the historical uh, the fact of this invention of the automobile, everything has changed. Right? Everything has changed. Like, you can't, you can't possibly imagine living in a city with no streets, with no traffic signals, no highways to which you could drive cars on. That's unthinkable. You can't imagine living in a place with no garage or a driveway or a street side, somewhere to park your car. When we think about a Sunday morning and we want people to come here, that's a big logistical thing we have to think about is where is everyone going to put their automobile that didn't exist 100 years ago? Like, that's a, that's a problem. You couldn't imagine in a million years, you couldn't fathom coming to this place every Sunday from Lake Charles and De Quincey and Moss Bluff and even Carlos. That's unthinkable. But the historical advent of the automobile changed the scope of what's possible, right? It, it, it changed what's possible. And what the Bible is saying is that the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ changed what's possible. Until the resurrection of Jesus, we lived in this world that was only defined by death, only defined by sin. The decision Adam made to plunge the world into chaos, that's what this world was defined by. There was no other option. That's where we were stuck. But with Jesus has come this new reality, a new possibility, this new reality of the resurrection. And as an Adam, all experience death, every single one of us, that's all of us in the room, including you and me. No one is righteous. No, not one. We all experience the death that, that's been handed down to us from our father Adam. So in Christ comes the resurrection. And this doesn't just mean like life after death. It frustrates me to no end when we say, you know, we, we build up this, this idea of walking in a, in a relationship with Jesus that will one day get you to a place of, of perfection and glory. While that's all wonderful and great, Christ is with us now. And we walk in this promise and we walk in this freedom now, today. And we can see all around us how he, how he works and how he, how he moves. And that's, that's the idea, that this greater resurrection, it, it, it's, it's the renewal of, of material creation as well. And so you look around, the final resurrection is pointing to everything that is lovely, everything that is good, everything that is right in this current world, everything that you see and what you love about this creation being restored and being renewed without the fingerprints of sin, without tainted with, with, with suffering and pain, without death. All the beautiful things that God has created is now given to us at the resurrection. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, a greater resurrection is coming and it's going to be glorious. It'll be something that you could barely imagine. And then he says in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there's an order to things. There's a way things are going to happen. The resurrection of Jesus being the first fruits. And then the text says, at his coming. So there's, a, there's this other coming of Jesus that the text is pointing us to. And at the time, those who belong to him, who are in him, who are in Christ, are going to experience, they're going to participate in this new life, this new world, this, this new creation, this new order that he has made. But now, in this moment, we live 
in this now and not yet reality. We live in this, in this in-between time of the resurrection of Christ and his coming. That's where we find ourselves today. Jesus has been raised from the dead, but we've yet to experience the final resurrection. So what this means for us is that we live constantly in this state of tension. This, this state of now and not yet. This, this state of, of longing. We all have this instinct, this intuition that there's, there's new life possible. There's something else possible that, 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 that we really can become a different kind of people. There's a longing in us for that. We're wired that way. We see it that way. There's, there's, that we could really be spiritually reborn and spiritually renewed. And at the same time, we realize that, hey, man, this world, is a, it's a broken mess. It's, it, it's, it's full of sin, and we realize that it's broken by this sin, and the tension is this longing that we have uh, to, to be remade, to be reborn, to be renewed. And so I don't want you to miss what it says here. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So who gets this greater resurrection? Who experiences all the benefit, all the blessing of what Jesus is coming again to bring? Those who belong to Christ. So I want you to catch the language of this belonging to him. Those who belong to Christ. Do you belong to Christ? Are you his? Do you, do you belong to him? Now, I don't mean do you believe Jesus actually existed. That's not the question I'm asking. I, I'm not asking do you believe that Jesus really was even raised from the dead. Like do you even remotely believe any of that. But do you belong to him? Are you his? Are you in Christ? I can tell you a lot of stuff about marriage about um, how a wife should be, how a husband should be. But this right here signifies something greater than just me knowing about marriage. It signifies the fact that I've covenanted with, some, with another person, and that person has covenanted with me, that we've, we've made this promise, we've committed to one another, we know one another, we are together, this is something that we've committed our whole lives to. And so, so you see the difference, like, I can know a lot of stuff about Jesus, but do I belong to him? A am, I, am I his? Do you belong to Jesus, or, or are you just more of this spectator, or this listener, or this hearer, or even an intellectual believer in Jesus? I know a lot of stuff about Jesus. Have you given yourself in love and in faith to Jesus? That's, that's the question I want to just set before all of us today. Have you given yourself to Jesus? In love and in faith, not the idea of Jesus. I'm not asking you, have you given yourself over to the, the ideology of Christianity or, or this uh, intellectual belief, but the person of Jesus, have you given yourself to him? And if not, I want to extend that invitation. I'm not inviting to you in some kind of fluffy religion that just makes you feel good and gives you the things that you need and God's just kind of like this slot machine and you just kind of get what you want from him when you want it from him. But I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus. The invitation is for you to come in love and come and in faith and commit yourself to him. The door has been opened. Christ has opened the door through his resurrection because he 
got out of the grave, a greater resurrection is coming. And for those who belong to him will experience this greater resurrection. And it can start right now. It doesn't have to be something that happens when you die. You can experience new life in Christ now, today. You commit yourself to him. You put your faith in him. You give him your whole life. And he'll save you. I want to close with reading this scripture over us. Paul would end this chapter. And he would say, When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we are extremely humbled and extremely grateful.